The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO at the Murthy Law Firm. We are so honored and delighted to welcome each of you for this afternoon's discussion on the very important and timely topic of the EB3 downgrade and the process for 485 filings. Joining us this afternoon are my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, James McLaughlin, whom we refer to lovingly as Jim. And Jim has been with the firm, as many of you may have already known or met him or talked to him over the years for over a decade. And similarly, we have another superstar joining uh, the two of us, Jessica Beaver, who's also been with the firm for over a decade. Both of them focus their time and work in doing PERM labor certifications, and as you can imagine, since October of last year, October 2020, when thousands and thousands of priority dates became current and the term EB3 downgrade suddenly became a household name, household term that's being used, we decided this year in advance of next month, September 2021, visa bulletin and the possibility of the priority dates moving forward in October, according to Charlie Oppenheim, of the U.S. Department of State Visa Office that we would have today's discussion focusing both in training employers and employees slash individuals and families going through the process. So put very simply, what is a downgrade petition? As many of you may be aware, it's simply the refiling of the I-140 immigrant petition for alien worker using the same underlying labor certification filed by the same employer for the same employee because the regulations do permit that as long as the refiling, the first refiling or the original refiling was done based on an I-140 that was filed while the original labor certification remained valid for 180 days. But this time when you do a downgrade, the employer or the attorney would help and check off the box marking that it is an EB3 petition instead of an EB2 petition. This basically means that the employer will be able to bypass the entire labor certification process with respect to obtaining a new Department of Labor prevailing wage, filing the ads, going through that whole dog and pony show to get a PERM approval. So that's the gist of it. So I'm going to now invite Jim. Hi, Jim. So why are people filing all these downgrade petitions? And what's the meaning and importance? Give a little bit of context to the audience. Sure, yeah, not a problem. So yeah, essentially the, the simple answer is because people can get a benefit from it. Where historically EB2, particularly for India, has been much more advanced than EB3, over the years we've kind of seen it shifting a little bit, and particularly since October of 2020, we saw EB3 really become much more advantageous, meaning somebody can actually file their adjustment of status 
um, because their priority date is current um, or eligible to file uh, on the visa bulletin. Uh, but this, it's been an anomaly that's now becoming the norm <laughs> in recent history. Um, essentially what's happened is you had the, in 2020 you had President Trump issue a proclamation that limited the issuance of family-based visas. Um, the law allows the Department of State to then reallocate those visa numbers to employment-based categories. So you had family-based cases at consulates that were held up that aren't being used, and the Department of State ideally wants to use up their visas. They don't want anything left over at the end. Um, and so they try to use everything up. So they shift numbers over to the employment-based, um, looking at what USCIS has in their um, in their system, how many adjustments of status they have, how fast they can move it forward. But you also had something else that happened. Obviously, COVID. COVID shut down the whole world for the most part, um, which then means you not only had this limitation on family-based visas, uh, visas, but also the fact that no consulates were functioning for the longest period of time or very uh, minimally meant you had a uh, huge amount of visas that were just not being utilized on the consular side that then could be shifted for those in the U.S. who are here and can benefit through an adjustment of status and don't have to worry about the consulates being closed. Um, you know, so, the, so the primary benefit and why people are doing these downgrades is as long as that job offer is still the same, same employer, same beneficiary, they can file their 485 and get that in queue with USCIS ideally possibly even lock in adjustments to status for children who they may fear may age out if they're reaching the age of 21. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jim. So, so I guess the next question that most people ask us, as you can imagine, Jessica, is, you know, first can a downgrade petition be filed in premium processing because I don't want to wait months and months and months to get an answer from USCIS. And am I allowed to just pay for the downgrade petition? How does that work? Sure, Sheila. So initially, it is best not to file the I-140 petition in premium processing, as the USCS could indicate that the files are not at the same service center. The reason why we're saying it's the best is because there are times when cases have, have gotten through because those laborers were at the same service center, but it is best to file it at the lockbox without premium processing get the receipt notice and upgrade it later. You just do not want to um, have any possibility of a rejected filing. You want to make sure it's properly receipted, especially when there are thousands and thousands of cases and the USCS could, could reject it if that labor certification wasn't there. Um, who can pay for a downgrade petition? So if you remember, the labor certification portion of the green card must be paid by the employer. So that was that, that first PERM process, the ads, the attorney fees, audit, any of that. But since a downgrade petition is technically an I-140 petition, then either party can pay for it. Either the employer or the employee can pay for it, whatever they've decided about. Um, although an employee can pay for a downgrade uh, petition, the sponsoring employer still has to have the bona fide job offer still available and must sign the I-140 petition. So essentially, either party can pay for it, but the employer does have to be on board to filing this petition. Wonder wonderful, thank you, Jessica. So the very common question that we get asked at the firm, of course, is at the Multi Law Firm is, so what are the risks? Why isn't everybody in the world doing it? Why haven't we done it? What does it mean? And there are different levels of risk, and we'll talk about it. All three of us will probably touch upon it. 
but you know, what are the risks with respect to filing a downgrade petition? So obviously you're filing for a fresh new I-140 petition. So it's like a new filing. The new USCIS examiner can look at it and have questions or concerns, issue an RFE, uh, because now they are going to re-examine a person's education, the work experience, and the employer's ability to pay from right from the original priority date, not from the new downgrade petition time from now. So if that other petition was filed 10 years ago, they will ask for 10 years of the employer's tax returns or proof of the ability to pay, or you can attach a copy of your W-2s showing the full payment of the salary, et cetera, right? So obviously education equivalence could have been, could have changed based on the AACRAO accreditation requirements, um, the affidavits that may have once worked years ago, because remember in the last four years during the prior administration of Trump, a lot of the rules and the way issues were looked at was looked at under a microscope in a much more exacting manner. And Again, as I said, the ability to pay is from the original priority date. So if in the middle the employee had left and now wants to come back to the sponsoring employer, there very well could be potential problems, especially with small or mid-sized employers. And even if one year their tax returns show that there was not a profit with the business or the full salary was not paid to the employee, the sponsored employee, uh, or there were the net current assets were not sufficient, then it could not only create a problem for the EB-3 downgrade case, it could actually go back and affect the e prior previously approved EB-2 case because that, by law, the employer has to meet and show the ability to pay until the green card, the 485, is approved for that person. So it's always an issue. It's always a risk that the USCIS will ask for ability to pay for all I-140 petitions where the employer wants to continue to be the sponsor. So, Jim, what are the other, you know, issues that can come up with the uh, downgrade case? Sure, sure. And before I get that, I just want to piggyback on something you said about the ability to pay everybody. You know, an awful lot of consults we have every day, um, and even our own clients over a period of time, because we're talking prior to dates that we're almost a decade ago. People are, you know, since October are able to file – there were a lot of times they left the employer and now they're coming back because uh, they can pursue that green card with them. So they didn't work for them for a year. So one thing to keep in mind is, the, like you said, the employer is going to have to show that ability to pay them their tax returns and net income or net current assets. But also when in those instances, that also opens up the possibility for an ability to pay everybody RFE. Um, so they open up all the I-140s for a certain period of time. So that's just something to be aware of. I mean, we do it all the time. We've been doing it all the time. And for the most part, your attorney or certainly at the Murthy Law Firm is going to be able to look at those issues before you file, discuss them, make sure there are arguments in our favor. Um, but it's just something to be aware of. And I would say that's point. a common issue. Um, Excellent but point. Something, Thank you, Jim. Something else. Oh, you're very welcome. But something else, obviously, is it has to be the same position. You're using that exact same labor certification. So uh, we're talking the same terms you know, regarding uh, the position itself, the job duties, um, the location of that position. If, you know, like I said, almost a decade's passed for a lot of these people, they probably have progressed in their positions. 
So unless it's a type of position they can go back to or they're still in and happy with it and the employer is fine, they may have to do a new labor certification. Or, you know, if there's been a successor in interest, but the position's still the same, they may not need a successor. They may not need to do a new labor certification, but they definitely have to file an I-140 amendment. But with that, they could also choose to downgrade if they'd like TB3. Thank you, Jim. And Jessica, did you want to add something else? Yes, Sheila, I just wanted to reiterate the point that you made, that if USCIS finds an issue with this I-140 petition in the EB-3 case, they can potentially reopen the EB-2 case that you already have, and then you could lose both the petition and the priority date. That is something that, that could come up. Um, you know, unfortunately, if they find that there's an ability to pay issue or that the education is not equivalent, they could go back and reopen the EB-2 case to see if that case had the same issue. Um, another issue that comes up that people ask is, you know, can I file this downgrade petition with the I-485 and then potentially still interfile my EB-2 petition into that I-485 at a later date? And what this concept of interfiling is, or some people call it conversion, is asking the USCIS, hey, I filed with one I-140 petition, but now I would like to file with a different I-140 petition as the basis of my I-485. So it can be difficult. We have found that sometimes this is difficult because it takes months for the USCIS to, um, to acknowledge. Um, it is possible, and with the new Supplement J form, it does have a better way of tracking. But just know that, unfortunately, the USCIS doesn't have a very easy mechanism to, to interfile petitions, and it's often hard to, to follow up on that down the road. Um, the other big issue is that both the employee and employer must have the intention at the time of filing this I-140 downgrade petition and I-45 application that the employee will work for the employer upon receipt of the green card. So an issue that potentially could come up is everyone is very excited that the dates are moving forward and they want to file their green card cases, but unfortunately the USCS could find fraud if the employer and employee does not have the intent at the time of filing um, this I-140 petition and I-485 application that the employee will work for them. So we've, we've sort of seen this come up and had these discussions with people before. Maybe they're not currently working for the employer. Um, the I-140 petition is always for the future, so it is possible to work for the employer once you get the green card or even once you get the EAD. But people should just be keeping this aspect in mind um, when thinking about filing, especially for uh, an employer that they're not working for. Thank you, Jessica. Um, so the next question is that we often get asked is, well, how does this downgrade petition filing actually happen? Uh, what do I need to do? So procedurally, your attorney, Murthy Law Firm, for example, would file the I-140 petition with the supporting documentation similar to what was done previously, but uh, at the multi law firm, we certainly do not mark amendment. I know some law firms have talked about that because we're technically not amending the previous EB-2 petition, but we are filing a new EB-3 petition. So arguably, we can keep both the EB-2 and the EB-3 both continuing simultaneously. We also include a cover sheet that, for example, may explain that the original PER, certified PERM, or labor certification is in the other EB-2 file, so it should not be rejected in the mailroom. 
And one technical, small sort of procedural point to keep in mind is that, you know, the employer or the employee cannot use two different forms of payment, for example, a credit card and a check, if the I-140 and the 485 are being filed together or concurrently. So, again, it's a practical issue. So next, let's jump to Jim. Jim, when is the person able to file the I-485 Adjustment of Status application? Because obviously, that's a big, big reason for people to want to do the downgrade is the ability to get the EAD and all of those fabulous incidental benefits like advanced parole and not have to go to the consulate for visa stamping, et cetera. So what's the process mm-hmm. on that, Jim? Right, exactly. So, yeah, like we mentioned at the very beginning, uh, the impetus for filing the downgrade simply is to get that immediate benefit, the 45, EAD, the advanced parole. But you can only file the 45 when your uh, priority date is current on the visa bulletin. So that's the date before the, the date listed on the visa bulletin, Section A, for final action. Or if you're looking at the uh, dates for filing, um, same rule applies. However, there's an additional step you have to make sure USAS is accepting that adjustment of status. Generally speaking, they're going to let us know within roughly about a week after the visa bulletin um, is released. So first you're looking at final action, and then if you're not current there, you see if USAS will accept it on the dates for filing. Um, But other things just to keep in mind is obviously you have to be physically present in the U.S. to file an adjustment of status. Uh, You have to have been inspected and admitted uh, to the United States. You have to properly file the 45 to the correct service center, the correct fee, properly signed, and like I said, when the priority date is uh, current. And Jim, just a few more things. Um, When can you file the 45? You also have to be eligible to receive an immigrant visa. So in this case, we're filing based on the I-140 immigrant petition for employment-based cases. Of course, as Jim mentioned, your priority date has to be current when you file. Um, as well as when the USCIS can adjudicate it. You also have to be admissible as a lawful permanent resident or eligible for a waiver. Really, we're just giving you some ideas. These really have to be examined on a case-by-case basis. Um, certain, certain inadmissibilities include health-related grounds, criminal grounds, security-related grounds, um, public charge. Everyone should take note that There is no more form I-944. We're back to the 1999 public charge rules. So um, it's a lot different than what we faced uh, last year with the last administration. Also, anybody that's an illegal entrant and immigration violator um, would also be inadmissible. You also can file for all dependents, you know, spouses and children under 21, if they're in the U.S. So like Jim mentioned, you have to be in the U.S. in order to file the I-485. Um, So any spouse or child under 21 would have to be in the U.S. and could file with the principal, um, showing that marriage and birth documentation to show the relationship. And Thank you, Jim. Oh, I was just going to say, Shelley, I think that's important, like Jim was saying. One of the reasons people may want to file the downgrade and try to get that 45 in is to protect those children under the Child Status Protection Act for those children that might be approaching age 21. So that's definitely an advantage to why people are are also filing. Yes, perfect. And so I think that ties in with what is generally required and the 485 and obviously for many other parts of the world, um, you know, what we take for granted here in the United States is obviously not as 
simple or straightforward, especially with respect to something like the birth certificate or birth documentation. Um, obviously, there's the visa reciprocity scheduled issued by the U.S. Department of State for different countries across the globe and what type of paperwork or documentary evidence is available or not available for a particular country. And the general, the safest, obviously, the absolute safest document is the actual birth certificate issued by the municipality or the particular governmental agency locally. Um, uh, and in India, in a country like India, for example, the, it would be the municipal, local municipality or the panchayat, which is in the village or the town. And if that's not available, or if it's late registered birth certificate or it's unavailable, then you need the non-availability certificate. And with, along with the non-availability and the later uh, registered birth certificate, you will then need to attach secondary birth documentation. Um, for example, if there's either that, like we said, it's not available, either there's typographical errors, very often it does not have the name of the child or the name of one or both of the parents, if it was registered late, has sometimes the wrong date of birth, then the secondary documents include affidavits from two people who were present at the time of the birth uh, and who are generally at least 10 years older uh, and who have knowledge, personal knowledge of the birth so that they can give the sworn affidavit and or hospital records, any kind of church or temple religious records, school records, high school leaving certificate and such documents. Anything that is very old information or documentation closer to the birth and issued in that person's, from that country's government. Uh, Jim, I see that you want to ask a question. Please go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I just wanted to add into that. You know, the, 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 the point about the affidavits of it definitely has to be two people and ideally uh, that have personal knowledge of the birth and at least 10 years of years of age, but that's also ideally what you want. You know, life is obviously more complex than that, and it doesn't always work out depending on where you were born. So you basically do the best you can. Um, perhaps you don't have somebody who has personal knowledge, but you have a younger sibling by a year or two that knows for their entire life you've been this person, had these parents, grew up here. You know, so you do the best you can. You know, with COVID, we saw a situation where, uh, for instance, India was locked down for the longest time. People couldn't go out and get affidavits because an affidavit requires a notary. So one of the things uh, that we tried to utilize were unsworn declarations. Um, so people are attesting to the information but can avoid that notary. So you go with the absolute best documentation you can or you try to, but then obviously you do the best you can with what is available. Thank you, Jim. Good point. Excellent point. And what about with respect to marriage documentation, um, divorce, etc., Jessica? So just like you're mentioning, Sheila, you want to look at the visa reciprocity schedule that the Department of State publishes for each country. Um, especially for India, we have the Hindu Marriage Act. So for most people that we found applying for employment-based green cards, the marriage certificate is not hard to obtain. Um, a lot of times we're able to use what you may have given the consulate to get that H-4 dependent visa. Um, there are times when perhaps the date of marriage is not listed or perhaps there's some typographical error. And then just like Jim mentioned for the birth, for the marriage we also could get two affidavits to sort of explain the issue that's not on the certificate or even something like the marriage invitation 
to include as a secondary piece of evidence. So including these sort of civil type of documents, we'll also be looking at your status documentation. So we as attorneys are trying to make sure that you've maintained status since your last entry, that you don't have something called unlawful presence, which would have severe immigration consequences for you. So we're looking at the I-94 from the last entry. So back in 2013, they started to digitize these. So you should be able to get it off the CBP website if you've traveled since then. Um, we're also showing the government that you've been inspected and admitted or paroled um, by showing them this I-94 card. Similarly, we're getting all those I-797 approval notices that have the I-94 cards on the bottom. So we're showing your status. You know, you entered the U.S., but maybe you've extended your status um, several times since then. Also, if you're a student, we're including those I-20 copies of EADs. Potentially, if you were in J status, we're looking at J-1 waivers. And then we're also looking at current and old passports with visas and non-blank pages. We're trying to show the government, you know, when you've entered, on what status, and that you've maintained status the whole time. One last point is just to note that a lot of people um, are getting excited about the dates moving. And of course, there's one, um, one document that needs to be included with the I-485. And in the instructions right now, you don't have to include it with the initial I-485 I-485 filing, which is the medical exam, the form I-693. So everyone should take note that when you're filing with a medical in the initial application, that means you're trying to get the medical before you file the I-485. Once you get it, you have to submit that medical within 60 days in order for the USCIS to accept it. It is true that it will still be valid for two years, but since this is an initial application, the I-693 must be within 60 days of filing the I-485. So we do want people to get medicals and to file with them. It's a good idea because we have noticed some employment-based cases um, are getting interview waivers. So the previous administration mandated that all employment-based cases have to have interviews. There's been no official USCS policy change, but we have seen people being able to receive these interview waivers. So if you are looking ahead, preparing your documents, I would say, you know, you can take a look to see the civil surgeons in your area, sort of prepare. You can get your vaccination records, childhood records together. But I would wait until the visa bulletin comes out and you know that you're eligible to file to obtain that medical. That way you don't get a medical, you know, that expires within the 60 days and you're not able to use it to file and then you use your time and money to get a new one. Wonderful. Thank you, Jessica. That was very thorough and comprehensive. Uh, so as always, you know, we try to do these uh, sessions between 30 and 45 minutes. I think we are right on target uh, at the 30 minutes. Also, another quick uh, pointer that may help all of you. We are also going to be posting FAQs on the EB2, EB3 downgrade issue so that people on the Muti.com website so that you have that as well, in addition to listening to this wonderful conversation and discussion um, between Jim McLaughlin, Jessica Beaver, and myself, Sheila Muthi. So on behalf of all three of us, I really want to thank you for joining us today as we continue exploring and delving into this issue because we do expect a forward movement of dates. We do expect to have more filings and potentially uh, people being eligible for many more of these downgrade types of cases as long as EB3 is moving ahead of EB2. And... Uh, at the Murthy Law Firm, we certainly look forward to the opportunity to being able to help you 
uh, when we are able to, continuing to guide you and mentor you. And uh, we want to wish you a very happy, safe, and healthy summer. Stay safe, stay healthy, and let's all keep our fingers crossed that the dates move so that you and your employees and their families, or if you're the individuals, that your families and you can get the I-485 and be eligible to file the EAD and AP. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, James McLaughlin, Jessica Beaver, and all of us at the Murthy Law Firm, we thank you so much for joining us today. Have a wonderful afternoon. Stay safe, and we'll be in touch. Take care. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.